We all have a vague sense that there is a wall out there somewhere that marks the outer edge of our life. But we hit a psychological and spiritual brick wall when we realize that it's not vaguely out there somewhere, but it's right here in front of us. It's a strong, tall, long wall that we cannot get around. We are all going to hit that wall. It's just a matter of time. Our busy lives don't lend themselves to reflection on our values, never mind talking with our family and friends about them or writing them down. We're too busy unless we are at an important life transition, anticipating marriage, the birth of a child, a divorce, or if we experience a life-changing event, the death of a loved one, facing surgery, being diagnosed with a serious illness. There is nothing as motivating to reflection as to being reminded that we are mortal. The serious things that are most important to us are not necessarily those we talk about often. But when we face a life transition, a life-changing event, or the brick wall of mortality, then we can at last let go of light conversation and talk about our wishes for the end of our own life and pass on our our personal values, beliefs, and blessings to future generations, whether we write our ethical will or not. Because most of us will die from one or more chronic illnesses, the chances are high that our loved ones are going to be responsible for speaking for us about our wishes at the end of our life. So it is all the more important that we share our values and what the term quality of life really means to us. We weave the fabric of our lives with the values that sustain us. Why would we do differently at the end of our life? We bind in the ragged edge of our life with the same values that we live by. A 50-year-old woman undergoes cardiac surgery. She's a single mother. Her 22-year-old son and many family members and close friends stay at the hospital throughout the day. By late afternoon, the doctors tell her son that she came through the surgery just fine, and they're very optimistic about her making a full recovery. Her son family and friends, go home, relieved and feeling upbeat. But at 3 a.m. that morning, the hospital calls her 22-year-old son to let him know that she has taken a turn for the worse. They advise him to come to the hospital. This is also when the hospital contacts the on-call chaplain intern, me, 
to ask that I come to the hospital to be with this young man whose mother is not expected to survive. I drive over the Golden Gate Bridge in the haze of dawn, praying for guidance. How can I help this family face this loss? I greet her son and a large contingent of family and friends and staff in the hospital lobby. This is when he learns that his mother's condition is grave. I gather the family and friends in the chapel for an impromptu prayer service. Prayers and stories are shared for this woman who has been a beloved mother, sister, friend, teacher, and high school guidance counselor. We return to the waiting room, and we wait. We all look up when the surgeon and neurologist walk into the room and pull up a chair next to this good woman's son. The doctors say that she has no brain activity, but is still connected to a respirator. They pause to let the news sink in, and then they ask her son, do you know what your mother's wishes would be? Through his grief, he says with a surprisingly strong voice, yes, my mother and I talked about this. I know that in her situation, she would not want to be kept on life support. As I accompany this young man to his mother's bedside to say goodbye, I notice that he is able to just grieve for his mother, unencumbered by doubt. It is a heartbreaking moment, and yet I felt so grateful to this woman who spared her son the agony of having to make a decision for her. He knew what she would want. She gave him the gift of grief, profound yet simple grief that was not compounded by feelings of uncertainty and guilt at decisions he made for her. There's a big difference between making a decision for someone and honoring their wishes. This is what I want for all of us. To be clear about what is important to us at the end of our life and to let our loved ones know. It is no small task, but it is no small gift. Ninety percent of people say that talking with their loved ones about end-of-life care is important. Twenty-seven percent have actually done so. Eighty-two percent of people say it's important to put their wishes in writing. Twenty-three percent have actually done so. If you've had your living will and health care proxy forms drawn up, bless you. But conversations, as in more than one, with your loved ones are still important. 
And if you haven't had that paperwork in place yet, you can start the process slowly to make it easier. You can start by writing a letter to yourself, a loved one, a friend. But I really recommend a wonderful resource from the Conversation Project. It's called Your Conversation Starter Kit. It guides you through a series of questions about your own wishes, questions that you probably already know the answers to. And if you need to have a conversation with a loved one about their wishes, it gives you helpful hints and guidelines, making that conversation more likely to actually happen and to be effective. But the most effective and convincing way of getting someone else to do their end of life planning is to let them know that you have actually done your own end of life care planning. And this is not an exercise just for us older folks. Younger people actually need these conversations and legal instruments even more, as family members will be less likely to know your wishes and, frankly, more likely to use extraordinary measures in a critical health situation. The impulse is for the family and healthcare workers to do every possible intervention for a young person, whether the situation actually calls for it or not. Of course we would. It's especially hard to let go of a young person. Their death would be out of order. And yet the wishes of a younger person are no less valid. I've ministered to young patients who are in a coma or vegetative state. I respect the difficult decisions their families have made for them. But as the years go by, I can't help feeling that both the young person and their families are trapped. It's important to talk about these issues before a medical crisis. One of the great challenges of decision-making in a medical crisis is the psychological burden superimposed on everything else that's going on when a person is very sick and difficult decisions arise. Families are almost always sleep-deprived, mentally exhausted, anxious, and spiritually stressed. Legal forms are important and certainly have their place, but in the past, way too much emphasis has been placed on fairly rigid decisions that are too narrow in scope. For instance, indicating in your living will, I don't want to remain on life support if permanently unconscious or terminal, probably doesn't really speak to the most common issues that arise when the outcome is less certain or when other procedures are being considered. So the most important thing is that your health care proxy, the person who will speak for you, knows you well knows what you mean by quality of life, and knows your values well enough 
to be confident in allowing them to feel relatively comfortable speaking on your behalf. It is never an easy thing to do, I know. Legal instruments and conversations are important, but sometimes a personal letter from you to be read when needed eases the way. Let me quote myself from a letter attached to my living will. In an effort to reduce stress on my family and friends, I have tried to make my wishes clear. I want you to know how I would handle things if I were able to. While no list of contingencies can possibly be complete, I hope that from these comments, you can infer what my wishes would be in situations that are difficult to anticipate. And I go on to enumerate a number of likely scenarios, given my own and my family's health history, and address some general issues, the use of medications, especially antibiotics, and receiving nutrition and fluids. And then, because I believe that every caregiver and decision-maker should be let off the hook at some point, I continue. Above all, the decisions about and arrangements for my care should not be overly stressful to you. If circumstances make my desired care overburdensome, please place me in a care facility. Yes, Alice and Bobby, I really mean that. If you are unable to make difficult decisions on my behalf, please seek the help of a physician, an elder law attorney, a chaplain, or religious leader. I trust that the best decisions possible will be made on my behalf. Stories have a beginning, middle, and an end, but experience The experience of our life doesn't really have an end. It continues indefinitely, influencing other lives, especially when we press all our faith into our fate. May it be so.